Mark 8, page 706 uh, is where we're going to be. So when I was 16 years old, I had Miss Thompson for biology class at Fort Dorchester High School in Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, biology was not one of my favorite subjects by any stretch of the imagination, so I normally didn't pay uh, attention very well. But I remember this one day in particular, 16 years old, 10th grade, sitting in her class, and she was talking to us about the way in which the human eyeball works. And um, I still don't really know much about the way that the human eye works, but I remember her explaining this to us and the way that light comes in and the way that we see things in turn. And she got to this point in her lecture where she started talking about colorblindness. Now, up until that point, I, I didn't really know what colorblindness was. I didn't know the way that it worked, but for some reason I started paying attention to her. And she was informing us that to be colorblind doesn't mean you don't see any color. You don't see the world in black and white if you're colorblind. It just means that the color you do see, you don't always see it accurately. So she started explaining the way that this would work. So one of the most common forms of colorblindness is red-green colorblind. I'm just curious, are any of you in here, raise your hand if you're colorblind. Are there any folks in here? Just a, a couple of you, okay. So uh, the, the way that this works is that a person who's red-green colorblind uh, will struggle, if there's a, a red billboard, they'd struggle to see maybe green writing on top of it. You, you struggle to, to kind of differentiate the colors and the shades of colors from time to time. So she's telling us the way that colorblindness works. And behind her on the screen, she throws up this test that they use to help a person discover whether or not they're colorblind. And maybe you've seen one of these tests. It was just a round circle that was made up of a bunch of red and green dots. And then in the middle of that circle is an image or a word or a number. And I'll never forget Ms. Thompson making this statement. She said, uh, folks that are colorblind can't see what's in the middle of that circle. And I looked up and I thought, I can't see what's in the middle of the circle. Now... Uh, she was an awesome teacher that would make fun of us and tease us and kind of hang out with us. You know, she was like one of those kind of cool high school teachers. So at first I thought, she's just messing with us. So I'm not going to let her know that I can't see what's in the middle of the circle. But it became really apparent very quickly that, that the people around me could see something. And so she said, can anyone in the room not see it? And I, I kind of sheepishly raised my hand. And then she threw another test on the, the screen behind her. And she said, can you see this? And now everyone's looking at me. And once again... I can't see what's in the, the middle of the circle. And she said, how long have you known that you've been colorblind? And I thought, about four seconds, you know. <laughs> and uh, this, is, this is a brand new revelation. And then everyone in the room started doing what you'd expect them to do. Hey, what color is my shirt? What color is my shoes? You know? I'm like, I can see color. I just can't see color correctly. I didn't know that I couldn't see color correctly. And all of a sudden, all these things began to make sense in my life. The, the way I used to dress, the way that I would dress, clothes wouldn't match. Or my art teachers, when I would color things, wow, you're so creative and eccentric. <laughs> no, I'm just colorblind. I don't, I, I don't know what I'm doing. And there was this moment of revelation. I was 16 years old, and I'd spent my whole life seeing, but I had not seen clearly. And I didn't know it, and things began to make sense. And I think our, our lives are full of these moments. Maybe you've had the revelation of sight before, but maybe it wasn't a physical revelation. Maybe you had a relational revelation. Have you ever had one of those moments where you know someone, they're in your family, they work with you, they're a roommate, they're someone that you see on a regular basis. You know them, you know what they're like. Maybe you've even judged them before. And then you find out something new about their story, where they came from, what happened in their life. You discover what it is that they're wrestling with in the moment. And have you ever had one of those moments where the blinders came off and you discover that although you have seen that person many times, you've never really seen them until right now? Or maybe you've had one of these moments just with a situation in your life. Somebody makes a decision. Maybe it's your boss. 
Maybe it's your parents, maybe it's a friend or your spouse. They, they make a decision, and in the moment, you think you see clearly. You think you know what needs to be done, and you go, why in the world did you make that choice? Why did you make that decision? And then you get the gift of time or perspective or a new set of facts, and all of a sudden, you begin to see things differently. I think our lives are full of these moments where the blinders come off, and we begin to discover that although we have been seeing for quite some time, we have never really seen clearly. And I think this is at the heart of what's happening in Mark chapter eight. We spent the last few weeks in Mark eight because it's such a pivotal chapter in the story of Mark's gospel. If Mark's gospel was a roller coaster, chapter eight is the top of the hill. He spends the first eight chapters just kind of taking us to the top. It's just like, it's just, it's just building up. And Mark is making two big points, I think, in the first eight chapters of his gospel. First big point, Jesus is God. And the second big point, no one can see him as he actually is. And so Mark keeps showing us these pictures as we're climbing up the roller coaster hill. Look at Jesus. He can calm the, the storms. He can heal the sick. He can raise the dead. He can forgive sin. Mark is saying, Jesus is the Son of God. Like before you is not just a, a carpenter or a teacher or a philosopher or a prophet. Before you is the Son of God. And Mark is going to show us that over and over and over and then almost on the heels of that revelation, all throughout the first eight chapters, we've seen this for six months now, on the heels of that revelation will be someone or a group of someones who can't see Jesus as he really is. And so we come to Mark chapter eight, and Mark chapter eight is like a spiritual vision test. And Mark is colliding these two things together. Jesus is the son of God and no one can see him. And so a few weeks ago, if you're with us, at the beginning of Mark 8, Jesus performs this unbelievable miracle. He, he, or he feeds 4,000 people with a few fish and a few pieces of bread. And then what happens right after that revelation of his deity, of his sufficiency? What happens right after that? A group of religious leaders comes to him and argues with Jesus, and Mark is making it clear. Jesus is God, and the religious people can't see him. And then the story we looked at last week, if you're with us, Jesus comes out of that conversation with the religious people that couldn't see him. And he gets in a boat with his closest friends that have been doing life with him every day for three years, seen all the miracles, heard all of the teachings. And Jesus starts telling his disciples, he's saying, listen, be careful. Your sin will make you blind spiritually. Your, your sin, your unbelief, will impair your ability to see me as I really am. And as Jesus is having the conversation with his disciples about spiritual blindness, they prove their blindness by asking Jesus, hey, are you telling us this because we forgot the bread? And Jesus goes, no, no. And then he makes that famous statement that we looked at at the end of last week where he says, do you have eyes and you can't see? Do you still not understand who I am and what I'm doing? And Mark chapter eight is this moment where Jesus is putting the disciples down in the classroom. He throws the test up on the board and he says, can you see me as I really am? And the story comes to the top of the roller coaster and this little weird story with four verses in it that we're gonna look at this morning is going to be the pivot point that will slingshot the disciples into the adventurous mission of Jesus. So open up your Bibles, Mark chapter eight. We're gonna start in verse 22 together. You all with me this morning, you here? You're doing good? Okay. The nine was a little bit sleepy. I love them. They're a little bit sleepy, but we're getting ready to open up the word of God together. We're gonna to see if God has something to say. And so let's see what he has for us. Mark chapter eight, verse 22. So, so the disciples, right after this conversation they've just had about their inability to see Jesus, 
the disciples, they came to Bethsaida, verse 22, and some people brought to them a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand, he led him outside of the village, this is crazy, and then he spit on the man's eyes. Now pretend you're not in church for a minute, I don't care if it's Jesus, you don't want anybody spitting in your eyes. Weird story, Jesus spits on the man's eyes, and then he put his hands on him. And Jesus said, do you see anything? Verse 24. The blind man looked up and he said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. You can just imagine him. He's going, I I can see, but it's blurry. Like I can't really focus. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes and his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home saying, do not even go in to the village. This is the word of God out of Mark chapter eight. Now there are two levels that I think we can read this story on. One, one level of reading the story is this is just another miracle and if you read it at a first glance, it seems like a miracle that's gone wrong. You don't have this happen any, any other place in the scriptures. Jesus never tries to heal a man whose legs are crippled and only get it right with one of the legs. You don't see a guy hopping around on one leg going, okay, Jesus, you almost got it. There's never a moment where Jesus goes to raise a dead person and only raises them halfway. Every miracle up until this point has been an encounter with Jesus and the result has been total restoration. So something weird is happening here in Mark, but here's what I wanna really kind of argue with this this morning, kind of, kind of put before us, is that this story in Mark chapter eight, it didn't go wrong, it went exactly the way that Jesus wanted it to go. Because Jesus' primary, uh, primary purpose in the story was not to solve a problem, it was to prove a point. And Jesus is having this conversation about spiritual blindness with the religious leaders and with the secular culture and with his very closest friends. And what they keep discovering is that although they have seen Jesus, none of them see Jesus clearly. And we we come to this little story and it's as if Jesus is saying, what part of your heart needs to see me more accurately? What part of your life needs to be touched by me again? Where do your eyes need to be illuminated to the things of God? And I think this story is a moment where Jesus takes one man's physical condition and he uses it to reveal a group's spiritual reality. He takes his physical condition and he uses it to unveil their spiritual reality. So let's let this story wash over us for a few minutes and then we'll kind of wrestle with a few things that I think come to the surface in regards to Christ and what it means to follow him. So you jump back to verse 22. I love the way that the story starts. They have just had the conversation about their spiritual blindness and it says they come to Bethsaida. Now, now for us, you know, if you're like me, I hear Bethsaida and it doesn't mean anything to me. Like if I said New York City, you could picture New York City. Even if you haven't been there, you have some assumptions about the sights and the smells and the noise. And uh, when you hear Bethsaida, there's probably no memories, thoughts, or pictures that come to your mind. But Bethsaida was this small little village that was really important to both Jesus and his followers. It was about 15,000 people lived there during the days of Jesus. It was on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. And a lot of Jesus' ministry had happened in and around this little village of Bethsaida. Small town, everybody knows everybody. Everybody's up in everybody's business. And Jesus would keep showing up. He kept doing miracles. And one of the things that you discover about Bethsaida is even though he had done a lot of miracles, the people had still not responded to him in faith. And so this story about Jesus talking to his disciples about their inability to see him, even though he's been around a lot, and this story of Jesus healing a blind man, 
over a couple of tries happens in the context of a city that was known for its spiritual blindness. But this wasn't just a city that was important to to Jesus' ministry. It was a city that was important to Jesus' followers. If you read John chapter 1, we're told that um, Peter, Andrew, and Philip were born in Bethsaida. This was their hometown. Isn't it true, like when you hear the name of your hometown, wherever it is that you grew up, you, you have memories, you have thoughts, some of them good, some of them bad. You, you begin to see things and think about things differently. So when I go home to, to visit my parents in Charleston, I'll drive through that city that I grew up in, and there'll be memories that will just come to the surface, both good and bad, because it's a going home for me. And I think there's something really pivotal and really beautiful that's happening here at kind of the pinnacle of the story as Jesus is getting ready to take his disciples on an adventure. They've been with him for three years. They've seen his teachings. They've seen his miracles, and they still can't see him. And so he takes them to their hometown, a city known for its spiritual blindness, and they encounter a man who can't see. Do you think this is coincidental? So this moment unfolds, verse 22, it says they come into Bethsaida and a group of people bring to Jesus a blind man. Look look back at verse 22. They bring a blind man and they begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and he led him outside of the village. Now, I wanna make some assumptions about this blind guy. Let's kind of get into the story. I know when we read the Bible, 2,000 years removed, it's black and white, it's hard to picture, but um, I would argue, at least from the story, that this guy probably wasn't born blind. And the reason I would make that argument is because when Jesus starts to open his eyes, he says that the people look like trees walking around. And I go, how would he know what trees and people look like unless he had seen before? And there'd probably been a a moment in his life where he could see and something happened. Maybe it was a disease. Maybe he got kicked by a horse. I mean, who, who, who knows what it is that took his eyesight away. But my hunch is that these disciples who had grown up in this small town where everyone knew everyone, probably knew this guy that was being brought to Jesus in their presence. And they probably knew the backstory that had haunted this guy's life. And they knew what he was like before and they knew what he was like after. Think about a friend of mine in high school, his name was Mike. And when we grew up, we'd go surfing together, we'd hang out together, just a great dude. And when we were in 11th grade, um, 16 or 17 years old, um, Mike bought a surfboard from one of our other best friends. And went out surfing with a random group of guys one day and a freak accident happened. He got thrown into the sandbar, broke his neck. He's been paralyzed for the last 16 years, waist down. And it's one of those moments, it's it's really bizarre because when I think about him, I kind of remember both sides of his life. I remember playing baseball with him. I remember surfing with him, hanging out, like seeing him in that. And then I remember watching him roll across the stage in his wheelchair. And when I think about him now, I, I think about the pain of a haunting backstory that forever changed his life. And I just wonder if this was the case when the disciples saw this, this blind guy walking out to him. We know this guy. We know his story. Have you ever had somebody in your life that their story was so painful and so dramatic that over time you quit praying for them? You know, remember when Mike broke his neck, I remember I was like praying, God, heal him, heal him, heal him. And then over time, just honestly, you quit praying. Because there's something about walking in pain and brokenness for a long time that distorts our uh, ability uh, to see Jesus clearly. And yet you have at least a few friends that believe Jesus still had the touch, that Jesus could still do something. And so this story is unfolding. They have gone to their hometown, the city marked by its spiritual blindness. They encounter this man that they maybe knew who'd been marked by spiritual blindness. 
And Jesus takes them by the hand and he leads them outside of the village. And I don't, I don't think this is accidental. Have you ever noticed those times in your life as you kind of look back on it where God has removed you from a certain situation so you could see Jesus more clearly? And so you get fired from that job and you think that, man, this is the worst thing in the world, but you realize that in the context of that job, you're surrounded by a pretty rough crowd and for a season, Jesus was removing you from that crowd so that you could see the things of God more clearly. Or you're in a relationship and she dumps you and you don't think you deserve to be dumped and it breaks your heart, but for a season, God removes you. I think there are these moments in our life where God takes us outside of the village. He leads us by the hand. He gets us beyond the noise of our own hometowns and our own spiritual blindness so he can have our attention, just us and him. And he takes this man outside of the village and I wonder what that walk would have been like to, to have the hand of his maker holding his hand, telling him, hey, step over this rock, step over this ditch. He's taking him outside. Just the, the sound of gravel crunching under his feet, the sound of the city kind of fading in the background. And they get to the outside of the village and here he is, he can't see, standing before his maker. He knows that this is the miracle worker. He knows that this is the one that raises the dead and heals the sick and calms the storm. And the first thing he hears from his maker is, oh. And don't you know, he's like, whoa, 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 I believe, I believe, I believe. During the days of Jesus, they thought that rabbis, that their saliva had a therapeutic healing touch. It's kind of like the essential oils of the day. You could bottle a rabbi's spit and, and it was supposed to do something in your life. And they thought this, and I don't know why Jesus spit in his eyes. I don't know why this was his manner of healing. Up to this point, we've seen Jesus heal six different blind people and he's done it a different way every time. But I think there's something in this. You know, if you have a car wreck and you're sitting on the side of the road and your arm is bleeding and a nurse pulls up and she pulls out her first aid kit, what do you know she's getting ready to do? She's getting ready to work on you. She's getting ready to heal you. She's getting ready to put you back together. And I think Jesus was just giving this guy just a tangible expression of his intention, what he's getting ready to do. Jesus says, you think the spit of a rabbi will heal? Well, here you go, you know, just spits right in the guy's eyes. And he puts his hands on him. And then this unthinkable moment happens. He, he removes the hands and he says, can you see? And if you've been with us for the last six months as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, you're supposed to know how the story ends, right? The, the guy's supposed to go, yes, I see perfectly. I, I can see so clearly, but the guy looks at Jesus and it's almost an embarrassing moment. It's like he says, hey, Jesus, I'm not sure if you know, but it didn't actually work. It's kind of blurry. <laughs> it's kind of blurry. Can, can, can you touch my eyes again? Can, can you heal me again? And what does Jesus do? Puts his hands on the man. He restores his sight fully. And he looks at him and he says, don't go back into that village. Don't go back into that place of unbelief. Don't go back into that place of spiritual blindness that you came from. Keep moving forward. Don't go back. I go, there's this one level of, of reading the story and, and you can read it and go, okay, sometimes when Jesus heals, it doesn't work. But I don't think that's what this story is about. I don't think this is about the progressive power of Jesus. I think Jesus is using a physical situation to help the disciples take a spiritual inventory of themselves. They find themselves sitting there in the midst of a spiritual vision test and Jesus is trying to help them see, guys, you still don't see me. You've been in church your whole life. You've heard all the stories, you still don't see me. Hey guys, you've seen all the miracles, you still don't see me. And Jesus is helping the disciples 
not just see where they're at, but he's helping them see the grace with which the Son of God approaches people who still can't see him clearly. And there's all these amazing things that begin to unfold. I wanna, I wanna just invite you to explore just four realities with me this morning, just four quick realities as we think about this story, because I believe that Mark chapter eight is not just the hinge on which the disciples' relationship with Jesus turns. I believe that Mark chapter eight is in so many ways the hinge upon which our stories with Jesus changes. And so there's just kind of four pictures that I wanna bring to the surface as we think about spiritual blindness. So if you take notes, here's, here's the first one. I think Jesus is reminding the disciples, Jesus is reminding the disciples that all of us suffer from spiritual blindness. All of us suffer from spiritual blindness. It's, it's what he's making clear, I think, all throughout the Gospel of Mark. The religious leaders can't see him. It doesn't matter where they grew up, where they went to school, they can't see him. The secular crowds can't seem to see him. Even his closest friends can't seem to see him. And I think Jesus is helping the disciples see that part of you being a disciple is you understanding your inability to see. There's some of you that are here with us this morning that are not Christians, and if you don't hear me say anything else this morning, will you please hear me say this? There's some of you that are here this morning and you're spiritually blind and there is no place on planet Earth safer for you to be with your spiritual blindness than here. You do not have to sit in the classroom of your 10th grade biology class pretending that you see something you don't. I was in your shoes, I was blind. We've all been in your shoes, we've been blind. And your blindness does not make you lesser than. It's just real. We all have a form of spiritual blindness. I'll read a, a passage of scripture just to kind of illustrate this. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. It says, the God of this age, it's talking about Satan, talking about the enemy. It says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. This is what we talked about last week, if you're with us, the yeast of unbelief, remember this? He says, Satan blinds us, uh, our sin blinds us, and we lose the ability to believe. This is the word of God, just listen to this. It says, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So he says, here's what's happening before you love Jesus, before you follow Jesus, before you understand who Jesus is, is, is that the enemy has distorted your ability to see the light of who God is. And before you see the light of who God is, you're spiritually blind. And some of you are here and you're spiritually blind. You're like the man who's being led outside of the village. You can't see where you're going. And some of us are like uh, the guy right after the first healing. We can see God's awakened our hearts. We've been saved. You can, okay, man, Jesus is the son of God. But our vision of Jesus is still very blurry. It's what 1 Corinthians says. I'll give you a verse for you. First Corinthians 13, verse 12. It says, for now, we see only a reflection as though we're looking in a mirror. But one day we will see face to face. Now we know only in part. One day we will know fully, even as we are fully known. And I think there's this picture that Paul's given us there in 1 Corinthians 13, is that even though even after you've been saved, even though you have seen Jesus, you still don't see him clearly. And that does not surprise Jesus. He's not surprised by our blindness. He's not surprised by our blurry vision. He knows that this is the way that it goes. And so here's why this is important. I think this kind of first discovery, Jesus is helping them see, hey, all of us have some level of spiritual blindness. The reason this is important 
is because when we come face to face with our own spiritual blindness, I think it breeds a supernatural level of humility. When you understand that uh, I was blind at one time or I'm still you know, growing in my ability to see Jesus, when we understand that we're all in this boat, this is like a school of the blind. We shouldn't rename this Ethos Church, the school of the blind. And you realize we're here because we can't see. And we're here because we want to see more fully. And this breeds a sense of humility towards one another. Non-judgment towards one another that I think is unbelievably beautiful. So the first thing I want you to notice, I think Jesus is revealing we're all spiritually blind. Second thing that I kind of want to uncover in this story is that Jesus himself is the only one that restores sight. So the first discovery is that we all have some level of spiritual blindness. The second discovery is that Jesus alone is the one that can fix our eyes. And so the friends in the story, they got it right. They knew that they couldn't fix their friend's blindness. They knew that his issue was beyond contacts. His issue was beyond glasses. That this man needed the supernatural intervention of God in his life. And I think this is so important. I think Jesus is saying, until you come face to face with the reality that you cannot restore your ability to see God as he is, you'll never be able to see God as he is. That there's this thing that has to happen where you discover your blindness and then you realize that Christ alone is the one that helps a person see. If understanding we're all blind breeds humility, understanding that Jesus alone gives sight will breed grace. Because you understand that to see the Lord is a gift from God. To see God is a gift from God. If you're sitting here this morning going, man, I wish I could see Jesus more clearly, that is a sign that your heart has already been touched by the grace of God. The fact that you want to see him more is a sign that your heart has already been touched, at least by his grace, and your ability to see him did not come because of the, the home you grew up in, it didn't come because of the school you went to, it didn't happen because you're so good and nice and have followed all the rules. The reason you've been able to see Jesus at all is because Jesus himself has spit in your eyes, put his hands on your face, and he said, I want you to see. Would you ever show up at a, a school of the blind with people who are physically blind and make fun of them for not being able to see? If you do that, you're probably the worst person ever. You can still be forgiven and you're still welcome here, but we're gonna be mad at you for a season, okay? We're like an anti-making-fun-of-the-blind type place here. That's, that's the way our community rolls. You would never make fun of someone who's physically blind. Why would we ever make fun of someone who's spiritually blind? This is one of the things that just drives me crazy about our culture right now, especially our Christian culture. Things happen around us in the world. People are living like they're blind, and we start getting on Facebook and yelling and making, oh, what's wrong with the culture? What's wrong with the world? Like, why are they doing this? Do you know why the culture does what it does? Because it's blind. The people you know and love who don't know and love Jesus yet are blind. And just as if they were physical blind, physically blind, you'd never make fun of them. You'd never look down on them. You'd never, you'd never be hard-hearted towards them. You would take their hand and you'd walk with them and you'd serve them. And I go, this is the picture of what these friends are doing. They, they bring this blind man to Jesus understanding that they're all blind and only one can fix the blindness. Third thing that I wanna bring to the surface it's not just that they're all blind. It's not just that Jesus restores sight. Third thing is that so often the restoration of spiritual vision is a lifelong process. 
The restoration of your spiritual vision is a lifelong process. There's a, a beauty and a frustration in hearing a really good testimony, right? Because I think a really good testimony has this ability to inspire you, but it, so often it's not helpful because typically if it's a good testimony, it's the story of unbelievable transformation in a person's life. And so often that testimony will share in just a couple of minutes or just a couple of seconds what took place over a really long period of time. And if we're not careful, we begin to judge what took years in one person's life against what's happening in, in the context of our, our minute by minute story, right? So you kind of see this in every area of your life. You know, you're up late at night, you're eating that second thing of ice cream straight out of the carton because you're feeling bad for yourself. And marketers know that that's how you're feeling about yourself. And so at two in the morning, they, they run the commercials for six minute abs. And you're sitting there eating ice cream going, I could do six minutes. And then when you buy the six minute abs DVD and you don't use it, next month you'll buy the five minute abs DVD. And then, and then someone came up with an idea hey, you don't even need to work out. You can just put on this electronic belt that will shake your body as you eat the ice cream. <laughs> and it's amazing at two o'clock in the morning, like I'm eating the ice cream and I'm like feeling bad about myself. And I'm like, you know, maybe that will give me the six pack ab, you know? And maybe Sydney will eat dinner off my stomach once again. That's my wife, we're allowed to do that, you know? Um, you know, maybe that will work. And what happens with those testimonies? It never, it never works. Or you want love. Man, I want love. Man, but I'm not willing to go through the journey that it takes of actually loving someone and getting to know them. Or I wanna be rich. Oh, I wanna be rich. But just do this and a month from now, I'll quit my day job, right? And, and no one ever says, no, it's probably gonna be 40 years of working that job and, and investing well and, and, and not making stupid choices. And you, you never hear that story, right? Because when you get the testimony, the testimony is always this like big, larger than life, quick, 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 you can have it. And we do this spiritually as well. I think about almost every spiritual testimony I've ever heard. It's always the most outrageous testimony. You never have some woman get up on stage and say, you know, I've been following Jesus for 30 years and I still hate reading my Bible, but I'm gonna try anyways. It's never the testimony. You get some guy up on stage who doesn't look like he's a Christian, whatever that means. He doesn't look like he fits the bill. And they'll say, what's your story, brother? What's your story? And he'll say, you know, 30 minutes ago, I was out at the park selling, selling heroin to children and punching pregnant nuns. And this guy <laughs> rode by on his bike and he just shouted, John 3.16. And I, the Lord opened my eyes. And I went next door and started preaching in the prison. And there's this revival and we're going to unreached Muslim nations. God's going to do a work. And you hear that testimony and it's just like, God, would you just help me with my lust problem? God, I'm really trying to clean up my language. Could you help me? And I think sometimes our view of following Jesus is so inaccurate. And Mark is giving us a gift here. He's saying, listen, everyone's blind. Jesus alone restores sight. And sometimes it takes more than one touch. If this was my story, it would be 10,000 touches. Jesus would have taken this guy to Charleston and it would have just been one hand after another, hand on his face. I'm like, Jesus, are you beating that guy? No, I'm just showing him. I'm showing him how much I love him. I'm healing him. I'm helping him see. I grew up in a Christian home. Maybe that's your story. Maybe it's not your story. I grew up in a Christian home, great home. Uh, I knew about God from a very early age, but uh, God wasn't real to me or didn't start becoming real to me. I was 16 years old. 
I had a conversation with my friend Aaron's dad outside of the church van after I had skipped church, ironically enough, and he asked me this one question that blew up my heart, and it was the first time I remember the hands of Jesus touching my eyes, and I, I saw myself as a sinner standing before a holy God, and the God of grace was inviting me in. I was like, wow. You know what happened, though, after my eyes were kind of opened? I still saw blurry. I still kept sinning. I still kept struggling. I still kept wrestling. Two or three years go by, I go to college. Kind of the, the second touch of Jesus on my life came when my mom got cancer and I, I went through a season of doubt and frustration and fear. It was in that season that God used some people to touch my eyes again. I started seeing Jesus more clearly. Think about a spiritual awakening I started having when I was 22 or 23 through some circumstances. I think about a moment when I was 26, we had just started Ethos. And there's this awesome woman who used to be a part of our church. She's now working at another church. She's a great woman. She came up to me after one of my sermons and she said, Dave, thank you for preaching every week. Thanks for how hard you work. And I could tell a backhanded compliment was getting ready to come. You know, you can tell when someone's locked and loaded. And she said, thank you for working so hard on your sermon. She said, me and a group of friends, we're praying that the spirit of God would fill your life more fully so your sermons could be more effective. I was like, what? I was like that's the worst compliment ever. You know, like I just got done preaching my guts out and you're like, hey, thanks for trying hard. We're praying that God would supernaturally do something. That's the only thing that can fix your preaching uh, gift. And so I remember being so angry. Uh, three weeks went by and I went and met that little group. They kept saying, hey, can we pray over you? Please, let's pray over you. And I didn't want to pray over them. Uh, I didn't want them to pray over me. But I, I showed up at Starbucks and uh, they're there and I walked up expecting for them to pray over me. And she, she looked at me and she put her Bible in front of me and Ezekiel 36 was open. There's this one verse and she said, hey, I just think, I thought we were supposed to pray over you. I just think you're supposed to read this verse. And I remember standing in that Starbucks reading the verse and it was like the, the word of God came off the pages. I don't know if you ever had one of those moments. Just my heart was just open in a brand new way. Once again, just Jesus touching my eyes. I'm kind of going through one of those seasons right now in my life. God's just opening my eyes to some blind spots that I didn't know were there. And I think this is the story of faith and Mark is giving us a gift. He's saying, listen, look at your blindness. Look at who your sight will come from and look at the process that it will take. A lifelong coming to Jesus being touched. Here's the fourth thing that I want you to notice. Number four is that Jesus loves to finish what he starts. Jesus loves to finish what he starts. You are here this morning because God has started something great in you and he wants to finish what he's begun. And you go, man, but I only see, I see blurry. I don't understand God. He's gonna finish what he starts. Dave, I'm still a sinner. I know I've been saved by grace. I still feel like a sinner. He's going to finish what he starts. Dave, I know God's calling me to something more. I can't figure out what the vision. He's going to finish what he starts. And the only requirement for Jesus finishing what he starts is a person humble enough to stand before him with their blindness. I go, what would have happened if Jesus would have looked at the guy after the first touch and said, hey, how are you? Perfect. Doing great, Lord. I think Jesus would have let him go back into the village with blurry vision. But the guy had the courage to say, you know, Jesus, I don't see you the way I want to see you. I think this is one of the problems of being in church too long is sometimes we begin to equate time sitting in a pew with spiritual maturity and we start saying things like, man, I've been going to church so long, I really should be able to see Jesus better. I really should be able to, to get this better. I really should, I really should, I really should. And Jesus never asked the guy what he should be doing. Jesus says, what do you see? 
And the guy had the ability to say, you know what, I don't see the way that I think I do. I don't see the way that I want to. And Jesus, our gracious Lord, put his hands on his eyes and he restored, he finished what he started. I just wonder what it is that God wants to do this morning. I wonder where it is that he wants to put his hands on us. For some of you, he wants to open your eyes for the first time. For some of you, he's gonna open your eyes again and again and again and again. Some of you don't know how to come to Jesus. You don't know how to pray. You don't know how to talk to Jesus. And so you can come up front. We'll talk, we'll pray over you. If you want your spiritual vision cleared, we'd love to pray over you. But it's gonna be a process, just know that. But I'd encourage you to, to do what the, the blind man in the story did. He turned to his friends and his friends were the ones who took him because there are times in our lives where we are so blind, we don't even know how to get to the Lord. And so me standing up here and saying something like, hey, bring your blindness to Jesus is so frustrating because you're like, I don't know how to get to Jesus. I can't see him. I can't. So just turn to the person next to you when you're taking communion or come find me, come find someone in the room and just say, hey, I don't see God the way that I want to. Can I pray? Pray, take communion, ask God to do what only God can do. Where is your vision of Jesus still blurry? Oh, may we have the courage to tell him and the confidence to trust him and the humility and the patience to walk with each other as our eyesight comes in to focus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these men and women.